This is Marcel. And this is Isabel, and you are now listening to the Top Rank Podcast. For any new listeners we have out there, this podcast is an exploratory research platform centered on people of diverse backgrounds who are driving and shaping the world around them. Over the last decade, manifestation-based rhetorics to, quote, love yourself, believe in yourself, and feel good in your own skin have become guiding social directives for many people, but especially for women. We see these mantras in social media captions, advertising campaigns, and song lyrics that seem to promise that through a confidence-based mindset, we'll all be able to transform our psychology and therefore actually the conditions of our lives. Though it may appear harmless or even empowering, the tendency to emphasize individual agency over the structural conditions that we exist within and through is perhaps the core component of a culture of neoliberalism that also permeates and drives almost every aspect of our society today. So today we're very excited to be speaking to two sociologists, Shani Orgod and Rosalind Gill, who are the minds behind Confidence Culture, a new book that came out just this past February and actually specifically examines how the entrenched social injustices of our time have been reframed culturally as psychological blocks and what these conditions mean for us. Professor Orgad is an associate professor in the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And Professor Gill is a professor of social and cultural analysis at City University of London. We are so thrilled and honored that both of you are here with us today to really dig into the core themes of, of your book. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. I guess to kind of kick us off, um, I think it could be really helpful to define, you know, the, the core term that you all um, grapple with in this book, which is confidence. So I guess just to get us all on the same page, when you all are theorizing confidence, how do you define it? What, what does it mean to you, this idea of confidence, this word? Rose, would you like me to start or would you like to start? Yes, go for it. Yeah, thank you. I think um, the book uh, partly derives perhaps from our recognition of um, a gap, if you wish, between what we would have thought and understood um, of confidence and the way we observed it uh, materializing and circulating in contemporary culture. So perhaps a good place to start is with our thinking about confidence and the meaning of the word, which is much more profoundly a shared collective uh, sense of trust and belief in, um, um, in your ability or in one's ability and one's sense of capacity and one's sense of security, but it's rooted in uh, the notion and the knowledge that there's a profound support structure that enables uh, what we might call self-confidence. So a sense of uh, being able and being capable of doing things, being able and to trust uh, your own abilities or qualities, but again, because and due to the fact that you can also rely on others and that you have a wider structure of 
support that facilitates this confidence, whereas this really contrasts with uh, the meanings that we have observed uh, have proliferated over the last decade or so, uh, in which confidence has become um, a disposition, if you wish, or a feeling that circulates through um, a variety of messages that we examine in the book, um, where very much the imperative is individualized and psychologized. So it's all about how you as an individual, and particularly you um, as a gendered subject, as a woman, um, how you um, should and can possess and perform feelings of assertiveness, of strength, of resilience, of happiness, of positivity, but crucially not through relying on others and crucially not through thinking and demanding changes and support from structure, um, societal structures and others, but rather through working on yourself. So confidence is very much an individual um, imperative and individual obligation um, that women are encouraged and exhorted to perform and take on and become through working on themselves, through caring for themselves, through loving themselves, because nobody other, no, nobody else will. Shall I pick this up now um, and just add something as well? So I, I also wanted to, following on from what Shanice just said, talk about a distinction that we make between confidence and confidence culture, because you know, we, the first thing that we want your listeners to take away is really the strong idea that we're not against confidence, far from it, so that, of course, the idea of being uh, confident, of feeling comfortable in your own skin, of feeling basically and fundamentally okay in the world is something that we're right behind. But what we problematize is really the idea of a confidence culture that, as Shanice said, has kind of individualized and psychologized this, um, but that's also um, placed the notion of confidence as a kind of solution to inequalities. And that's a very crucial part of our argument, because the argument is not to be against confidence per se, but rather to be suspicious of and critical of the way that when the word confidence is mobilized, it's nearly always being mobilized as a kind of solution to social injustice, social inequality. And we, we use two different frames actually in the book. We use the notion of confidence culture and culture we're using in that sense to try and capture something about the way that these ideas are disseminated across multiple domains. It's not just one area of life, it's in body politics, it's in the sphere of work and employment, it's in relation to mothering, it's in sex and relationship advice, it's even in kind of development initiatives. So it's really, really widespread, this kind of taken for granted notion of confidence. But then we also use the notion of a confidence cult. And the reason that we, we use that notion is really to highlight the way that this has been placed beyond discussion. It really has become a kind of an article of faith. And that's what we wanted to interrogate. Thank you for that distinction. I mean, that that is definitely something that, well, Marcel and I actually talked about the fact that we have both spoken to so many people about this book since we read it because it just keeps coming up in a lot of conversations. And 
And I think initially when you tell someone the idea, there is this natural defensiveness about confidence being like a, a fundamentally positive thing. And so having, being able to distinguish what about it makes, creates the cult-like element and also makes it a, um, a form of compensation um, is, is really critical and, and sort of actually fits into the next, to the next question. Um, but before we get into that, I also wanted to ask um, what factors, well, I guess, when did you sort of see this shift taking place or what factors do you think contributed to it? Yeah, thanks. And I, I, I just kind of, you know, add, if, if I can, before this question, just to further pick up on what Rosa said and, and what you've just emphasized is we, we do emphasize it also very much early on in the book and throughout. Um, and this is what we call ambivalent critique. And it's, it's really our ambivalence about confidence um, and the notion that what we do not want to book to kind of come across as is just as kind of an easy critique. And we position ourselves very, very clearly and honestly as part of this culture. So we have ourselves found ourselves moved to tears by many of the kind of, you know, adverts, advertising types that we've uh, watched and analyzed or by programs that are about self-confidence in the workplace and so on. Um, but at the same time, as we said, we, um, so that we don't deny that it may help or empower some women as individuals, but we are interested in the work that it does ideologically and culturally. Um, and in this context, it's really when we started noticing confidence messages that were particularly addressed to women was around uh, seven years ago, though it should be said it's, it's been around in different forms for longer than that. Um, in kind of femvertising and other kind of assertiveness training back already at the 80s. But um, around 2014, and very much associated also with campaigns like at the time Dove's campaign, the Beauty is a State of Mind campaign, um, we were both working in different fields, but we began to notice the same themes and images um, across different spheres, from the workplace to intimate relationships to parenting advice, and as Rose mentioned, even global development initiatives. And so it was around that time that um, we locate, as it were, the emergence of or, or the ways in which confidence uh, culture has become more prominent and has taken on a new cultural prominence. And this is related to uh, several proce processes. One really important element is the financial crisis of 2008 and what the kind of aftermath of this crisis, which really gave new, gave, gave rise to this new common sense, particularly in relation to the ways in which work cultures and uh, work hours have been intensified, um, compounded by the crisis of care and the ongoing and intensifying withdrawal of the state from provision of uh, welfare and safety net against uh, social risks and ills. And this kind of dismantling of um, collective, structural, societal um, safety nets very much kind of provided a conducive ground for the emergence of a gendered um, demand and exhortation that was directly against, particularly uh, and predominantly at women, requiring them to take this kind of intense labor and intense work on themselves. 
Here in the UK, it was really very much strongly related to the austerity um, kind of policies and to the austerity culture that was distinctively targeted at women. Uh, it was all about uh, women kind of being thrifty, you know, going back to traditional crafts, cultivating this kind of historically, um, uh, uh, what's been historically associated as feminine dispositions in order to survive better. And so the, these kind of factors were really important. And the really, really important um, factor that has uh, contributed to uh, this shift and to the rise and rise of confidence culture has, be, has been the visibility, the kind of new visibility and reinvigorated visibility of feminism, um, but of a particular type and mode of feminism, which is very much a, what's been called by Catherine Rottenberg neoliberal feminism or by Sarah Bene Weiser popular feminism, this idea that it's a highly individual feminism which puts it on women to turn inward, to focus on themselves, to kick ass, to be, again, confident, to be empowered, um, but crucially um, deflects attention from thinking about structural barriers. So, um, and this new visibility of feminism, you know, in the form of politicians and celebrities, self-identifying as feminism t-shirts, uh, people wearing of declaring themselves as feminism, but again, a very particular kind of feminism that really facilitated and went hand in hand with this individualized uh, imperative to be confident, um, almost as a synonymous kind of way of uh, being feminist. So these are some of the kind of key factors that we identify. Um, and all this, it should be said, is really importantly uh, situated in the kind of further intensification and expansion of neoliberalism. Uh, neoliberalism, not just a kind of as an economic form, but crucially as what um, Rose in her work has called the psychic kind of uh, life of uh, neoliberalism, the ways in which um, we have uh, become and uh, been encouraged and exhorted across domains of lives of our life to um, internalize this idea of self-responsibility, of self um, kind of self-sufficiency, um, and uh, all this happening at the same time that less and less social structures and kind of safety nets are uh, being uh, available to support people. Yeah, I, I really appreciated how, you know, in, in the book and as you just were, um, kind of recounted right now, how you both situate yourself in a sort of ambivalent critique and also acknowledge the fact that you both are embedded in this type of, in the midst of the of producing this critique, you're also enculturated in this like very same, you know, like dispositions, cultural forms, et cetera. So I think it's really important just to acknowledge that while we can, you know, uh, lay bare some of how the structure of how all these, um, uh, how all these politics work to acknowledge the ways in which each of us is implicated, um, I think it's just really important for us to do. So I really appreciated um, um, you all um, bringing that forward in the book. Um, and the way that you also has historicized this shift towards confidence and like self-reliance within the economic and political crisis that we continue to face with, you know, neoliberal economic policies, you know, it, it, it makes me think a lot about what pops up on my YouTube page 
um, in my on my homepage all the time, which are these influencers preaching this like law of attraction, which I know you touch on um, a, a bit in the book, um, this type of law of attraction philosophy that has become a really seductive um, psychology, I would say, even, even for me as someone who is like, you know, navigating some personal changes in my life and looking to, you know, the internet amongst many different, um, you know, knowledge sources to try to find my way, this sense that, you know, if you just focus really intensely on improving yourself and believe that you, you know, have steady employment, believe that you um, are economically self-sufficient, have self-belief, then, you know, everything will come to you. And it seems like a very convenient, and as I said before, seductive way to, to um, minimize and obscure the, the, the broader structures and situations that have created um, you know, experiences of austerity and the like in, in, in people's lives across the world. So um, the, how, how you all are positioning and sort of historicizing this shift is I see, I, I experience and see the, the remnants of all of this all the time, um, which kind of leads us to uh, our next question, which is really thinking about, you know, the feminized body, um, particularly being this um, site and also the site through which, but also this kind of objectified con of, of construct through which ideas about beauty, autonomy, independence, desire are not only created, but, but disciplined as well. And the ways in which this, these forms of discipline um, interact with violence, you know, physically, um, psychologically, self-inflicted harm, femicide, the, the gamut continues. So with all that being said, you all present this concept of the, the body industrial complex. Um, and so we were curious if you all could share with the listeners a bit more about what you all mean by the body industrial complex and how does um, this form of discipline um, and the cult of confidence sort of contribute to this idea of the body industrial complex? Thank you. Yeah, that's a, such a great question. It's it's really, really interesting. And just before I answer that, just to pick up on what you were, you were just saying about the kind of seductiveness of some of the kind of um, Instagram influencers and kind of just zeitgeisty law of attraction stuff, I think um, Lauren Berlon's concept of cruel optimism seems really, really apt for, for making sense of this. And it's just that way that you get kind of pulled into something that feels so you know like it has so much potential to actually change your life but actually it's really cruel because it keeps you trapped in the very kind of material conditions that you're actually wanting to escape from um, so I really appreciated what you you said there but just coming back to your question about the body industrial complex we've we've kind of used the term in in two main ways I think, first of all, we just wanted to be really clear that messages about body confidence don't just come from one source, that they come from a whole complex of different sources that together make up this powerful set of ideas. For example, of course, they come from brands, and I think that's probably where most of us are most familiar with them. But they also come from psychology. They come very much from... from from psychiatry, from psychotherapy, they come from academic research, 
they they're bit they're pushed by governments we in the uk have had two body image summits that have been held by the cabinet office um of which is the prime minister's um office which is usually you know reserved for kind of matters of of economic crisis and and war and security but they've actually held kind of body image summits so it really is kind of a, a trending political issue. Um, it also comes from school boards, it comes from youth organisations. So we're trying to sort of convey that it really is an assemblage of ideas that work together and it, is, it isn't just located in one source. And I guess the, the second thing that we wanted to convey with that idea of the body industrial complex is the way that it's so patterned and organised um, the way that these ideas operate it's not just that they're kind of these ideas just floating around that just happen to be there they're very consistent they're very organized they're very patterned to the extent that even the contradictions and the tensions are patterned and organized so for example we've got this kind of dual focus on on the one hand it's celebrating body confidence and and being very defiant and breaking the rules yet at the same time as you just said there's this real emphasis on the punitive regulation of women's bodies and so this kind of defiance and this idea of breaking free and um, living according to your own ideas of beauty or your own self-determination um, it's you know it's it's held in check by this real sort of punitive regulation of normative attractiveness and it's very very heavily policed and I think in a way you know having ideas circulating such as my beauty my say or I make the rules all those kinds of notions of beauty is a state of mind it it's more pernicious because it minimizes the reality of the force of appearance norms and it treats them as if they're trivial it it treats them as if they don't really have a kind of cultural force and therefore that the women's lack of confidence is somehow just a kind of personal pathology and something that they're responsible for and are also responsible for getting over. We've often talked about um, the, the commercial patches that was produced by Dove as a really really pernicious example of this where the patch is revealed to have nothing in it. And it just is such a kind of brutal and blaming kind of discourse targeted at women. I feel like the thing that, one of the things that really stuck with me from the parts of the book that addressed um, that I, the, the idea of the body in, in particular were, as you said, uh, um, the extent to which these conditions are, are very much self-inflicted now, um, especially the, the, the punitive elements that um, we have learned to internalize a set of expectations and standards so that we actually no longer need to be disciplined like by an external force, but we do that work ourselves. And something that we had wanted to ask as well in relation to um, to this idea of wellness is that countless self-help related practices and services and products are now, you know, very much commonplace in American culture. And I'm sure in the UK as well. And they're part and parcel of this industry and business known as wellness. And this is actually um, something that's come up in a few other episodes that we've done as well. Like we also interviewed 
um, Sarah Benet Weiser a couple of years ago. And it seems that that this has been a de- like a, a developing phenomenon. And you cite um, Maslow's writings on self-actualization as foundational to how this is developed, but also point out the way in which these contemporary manifestations are specifically directed towards women um, who are imagined to be dealing with these like specifically gendered deficits. Um, so we wanted to also address like why that would, why that is the case um, and where the, and, and why it is that that punitiveness c- comes through. Mm, so interesting, yeah. I mean, I think it has a very long history. I think that at least over the last hundred years or so, um, self-help has been really heavily directed towards women. And it's been given lots of different names by academics. Um, It's been called the therapeutic term. It's been called the psi-complex. And um, Avery Luz has talked about really how something very fundamental is going on here, which is that contemporary capitalism is being remade along emotional and therapeutic lines and that these lines just call on us all the time to work on ourselves. Um, And when we're we're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we're actually, um, we draw on Mickey McGee's work um, and she says really, really, really interesting work on what she calls the belabored self. And she talks about how the idea of self-actualization, which was so popular from the moment that 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 work was published, um, that it somehow fused religious and psychological discourses in a really sort of potent way. And above all, it promoted the idea that working on yourself and put it in today's kind of social media jargon, being your best self, living your best life, is sort of central to the kind of striving that we should all do, that we should strive um, to get to that self-actualized sense of ourselves and potential. And of course, women have been disproportionately addressed by that. And it's not that men aren't um, hailed by these kinds of discourses, they are. And we did kind of specifically look at some of the confidence discourses that are addressing men. But generally, when men are addressed, it's framed in terms of achieving success or getting wins or getting mastery of a domain. Um, And also the strategies promoted are very much focused on sort of surface level changes. It's much more about behavior on things that men can do that will help them achieve better outcomes in the workplace or in their dating lives or whatever. Whereas when we look at confidence messages that are targeted at women, by contrast, the messages start from a very different place. So they start from the idea that women have a lack. And again, that really, you can trace that back, you know, a hundred years to early psychoanalysis. Um, It's this idea of a deficit, a defect, that that women have something missing, um, very much framed in relation to the kind of male as norm idea. And also for women, the methods of achieving confidence are much more deeply psychological. They're not just surface behavioral changes, they involve turning inwards and really working on the self. So even what are ostensibly the same kinds of messages in self-help culture, 
they do turn out to be very, very different. Thank you for, for sharing that um, distinction. I think something else, you know, what's so powerful about this book, again, is that a lot of, you know, you're really unearthing sort of the, the taken for granted um, ideologies that are seemingly, you know, positive and something that we should be embracing, really pulling back the layers to show um, how a lot of these um, ideas are are in support of, 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 of a broader, much a more powerful political and economic agendas. And another topic that you all cover in the book that really peels back the layers of something that I've been, you know, observing just as, you know, a consumer of media and popular culture is this duality that you all um, talk about in the book between, you know, confidence culture on the one hand as being something that's being lauded and praised and, and, and encouraged as a disposition that um, women identified people need to cultivate. But um, that type of confidence culture is, is, has also been, been paired with this kind of rise of um, these performative displays of vulnerability. I can think of, you know, countless celebrities and um, um, social media influencers and, and other public figures who are you know, becoming um, public about their their anxiety, you know, their mental health, um, you know, puncturing this idea of perfectionism that I think has been peddled out um, through our brand culture and the like for, you know, a century at this point. Um, the chapter that you all have on motherhood also brings out this idea that vulnerability is having its own sort of rise to prominence as this type of um, sort of cultural and social capital, right? In order to, to, to be vulnerable is also perhaps like a performance of confidence. Um, so I guess the first part of, of uh, I have uh, several thoughts and questions about this, but I guess you can start by um, talking a bit about um, this type of duality and this opposition between vulnerability and confidence. Can you speak more about that and perhaps how vulnerability and confidence um, prop each other up as these types of um, ideas today? Yes, thanks. That's a really great question. And indeed, what happened was also that, as we mentioned earlier, we started working on this project around 2014. But um, a couple of years into uh, the project, and as we were researching for the book, um, we noticed these kind of um, on increasing voices um, that seemed to have uh, at, at, at first, uh, contradict what we were arguing. Um, it felt almost, we were saying, almost as if they heard our critiques and now they're kind of, you know, encouraging vulnerability instead of confidence. And and we, we call it and we characterize it as the vulnerability turn because it seemed indeed to be a counter trend to confidence culture at first. Um, one of the... Uh, crucial and important um, kind of mobilizers of this was, of course, Brené Brown, who established almost, if you wish, her own vulnerability empire um, uh, through uh, a series of bestsellers, um, as implied in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, and later a Netflix series and podcast and so on. Um, and alongside Brown, as you mentioned, uh, um, celebrities and influencers, daily confessing um, about their mental health, about their imposter syndrome, about um, their various kind of uh, insecurities. Um, and while this imperative to um, be confident, as we mentioned, is really predicated on self-responsibility, on governing yourself, 
um, on repudiating dependence, it seemed as if that the invitation to be vulnerable, at least ostensibly, is an invitation to do exactly the opposite. It's about being dependent, about relying on others in the face of failure, in the face of discomfort and difficulty. But in fact, what we found as we were collecting examples and these kind of voices um, that uh, were all about embracing vulnerability um, through also popular books like here in the UK, journalist Elizabeth Day's uh, book, How to Fail, um, but also in merchandises like, you know, mugs, which says progress, not perfection, or um, memes and so on. What we um, have actually observed and realized is, is that in fact, rather than contradictory, this new normative ideal of vulnerability seems to have um, been deeply implicated. Um, and as you said, to prop up and bolster the confidence cult. And it does so in, in several ways. We think, first of all, it's really important to, um, when you look at these messages around vulnerability and the programs that are about, for instance, embracing vulnerability at work, in the workplace, or as you mentioned, the various kind of texts and websites that are encouraging mothers specifically to uh, be vulnerable, to perform their vulnerability. They fundamentally are about, again, working on yourself and they're fundamentally about turning inward. Um, so incitements to vulnerability are often kind of coming through and instrumentalized through lessons that uh, are very, very similar to the kind of lessons or five steps too that we've identified in relation to the confidence culture. Um, they're often kind of articulated through these kind of inspirational magic solutions. But crucially, and that's again where it seems to bolster confidence culture, there's rarely a parallel call to rely on others, to invest in developing a community. And what was very striking to us in examining the various kind of popular exhortations to vulnerabilities that there was very limited, if any, discussion of the structural sources of uh, vulnerability. So crucially, things like poverty, like ill health, like racism, like sexism. Um, and there was uh, equally no discussion almost of the structural and collective solutions that are needed to address vulnerability. So again, vulnerability was very much couched as a personal defect and a gendered one, one that women in particular were both the um, subject addressed with these messages as, as well as the ones who were quite enthusiastically embracing it. Uh, one of the kind of interesting things we noted is that while some leading kind of businessmen from Apple to um, other um, kind of um, business leaders, male business leaders were calling their employees to embrace vulnerability. In fact, when we looked uh, at the cultural landscape, those who seem to have come forward, as it were, and, and, and be the kind of first to embrace and perform vulnerability were women rather than men. Um, and also really crucially, um, embracing vulnerability in the way that it circulates in contemporary culture is largely about, as you just said, performing vulnerability. It's a performative, strategic act. Um, it's not about demonstrating this uninhibited vulnerability, but about uh, 
performing a very particular controlled sense of vulnerability. You know, Brene Brown has even these kind of flashcards that uh, you're invited to download from her website to practice how to express and exhibit your vulnerability in particular contexts. Crucially, what we um, found and what we discussed in the book is that ultimately really vulnerability becomes another site of privilege, very much like confidence. It's not something that many people can afford to do. Indeed, um, in some cases, people who have or will have will embrace vulnerability might pay a huge price, for instance, in the context of the workplace. It's not that our workplaces have become such that they are kind of uh, truly and genuinely um, supporting uh, employees to express their vulnerabilities so that those who do have the luxury to uh, express say their imposter syndrome are often people in power um, in the context of the gendered exploitation. It's often uh, women in power positions that have uh, the, their capacity to articulate and talk about vulnerability is predicated on the fact that they're no longer vulnerable, that they've, as it were, they cross to the other side. And so, in other words, vulnerability is allowed so long as it's located safely in the past and it's been overcome. And in this sense, it's very much about the story of from vulnerable to, to confident rather than saying be vulnerable as a kind of a, uh, an existential position. And finally, and again, I mentioned it already, but I think we really should note that the, this kind of uh, encouragement to harness vulnerability is profoundly gendered. It's not equally distributed, just like the confidence culture. It's women who seem to be both the prime uh, addressees of this kind of enthusiastic uh, uh, message, but also, again, they are the ones who seem to be um, the first recipients of the call to embrace vulnerability from Emma Watson to, you know, Michelle Obama to Melinda, Ga Melinda Gates to various other uh, women celebrity who have confessed their um, imposter syndrome, so-called, to other um, types of insecurities and mental health issues, which we hear about. It's not to say that male celebrities are not confessing them, but there's clearly um, a much more kind of much clearly gendered um, um, kind of bias to this um, call to uh, embrace vulnerability. So ultimately, we argue that vulnerability bolsters the confidence culture. Yeah, wow, you actually, that was like a perfect segue to the, the next question that, that I was going to ask, which you, you pretty much already answered because I was, as I was, I was really been really compelled by this, you know, duality that you, you pose between, you both pose between um, confidence and vulnerability, but I also, you know, had a moment of pause thinking about, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I had a close mentor of mine always tell me to personify authority. Um, with, you know, the teaching in mind that, you know, some people, you know, me as like a, a woman of color don't necessarily, you know, have the affordance to express vulnerability in certain domains and contexts like academia, for example, like for those of us who experience these intersecting modes of like racialized class, gendered forms of oppression and marginalization, where our abilities and also our capacities um, and our, how, how our performance is perceived, um, confidence almost become, or at least the performance of confidence um, and the performance of authority, right? As this professor told me, um, implored me to do, um, really becomes 
I guess I could speak to my own personal experience, confidence or the performance of it becomes this kind of survival mechanism to maintain, you know, access to, to resources, to scant resources, um, to adjust and adapt and navigate a world and power structures that already, you know, doubts my abilities, confidence and the performance of it. I think that's a really important distinction that you both bring up acts as this kind of um, form of armor or protection. So the, 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 the fact that you bring up vulnerability as this type of disposition that's also rooted in, in, in privilege is something that um, I think is, is a really important and profound point that I just wanted to, to underscore. So, so you answered my question already. Um, but I think another um, concept that was that's come to mind as I've been reading the book, as I read the book, was um, this, this, the concept of, 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 of stereotype threat, you know, that, right, that, that, that psychological theory that posits that when people um, from a marginalized group are kind of aware of the negative stereotypes that exist um, in relationship to, you know, a performance in math or a bunch of different um, fields, that just the very awareness and acknowledgement of that that negative stereotype exists can um, has been tested and shown to have adverse cognitive effects, um, adverse adverse um, um, impacts on how people perform on standardized tests and the like. Um, and often it's it seems that with this idea of stereotype threat, that the the problems um, that ensue from it are often framed as this type of, you know, crisis of confidence. Um, so I was just, I have no question there. It just got me thinking about how, you know, confidence can really be, um, or at least it's been theorized in some of like the psychological literature as being this like linchpin for, uh, for performance. It's rooted in um, sort of deeper systemic um, of stereotypes that end up um, surfacing and impacting how we navigate the world in very high stakes um, situations. So I just wanted to, 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 to present that a bit. Um, and if you all have, any, have, have anything to react to that, or we can, you know, move on, I think, to our final question. I don't know if Isabel had anything else to add to this as well. Um, well, I, I actually did really quickly um, want to mention, well, actually, I'm going to save this for the last question. So is there anything else anyone wants to say? And then I'll ask the last question. Um, well, I, I wanted to come in because I think that was just so, so, so powerful um, what you what you just said about the performance of confidence. And I think it does just go to what Shani was saying about this sort of um, vulnerability as a site of privilege. But I think also confidence as a site of privilege and that sort of dual aspect of needing to perform confidence and you use the word armor which I found so moving and and strong in this context of actually needing it's a kind of crucial armor and yet also to recognize that at the same time there are different costs for differently racialized classed abled um, people um, gendered you know sexuality all of all of these differences, there are different kinds of costs for performing um, either confidence or vulnerability. And I think that's a really, really important point that um, we might be called on to be confident. And yet we exist in radically unequal worlds where the meaning of that confidence can be um, taken very, very differently. And so I just wanted to sort of affirm what you said really about that. 
Yeah, thank you, Marcel, for for expressing that. Um, I I I also um, feel that I definitely feel that the the like delicate interrelationship between the performance of confidence and the performance of vulnerability is is what I perceive as being um, the underpinning of a lot of of social media and a lot of of celebrity and micro and micro celebrity. And that kind of feeds into the to this last question that we have, because I think that the formula for that type of persona that's performed specifically online has become so kind of overwrought and also um, redundant in a way that, that we're actually at a point where there's starting to be a bit of backlash to it. And Marcel and I have been thinking about this and I saw actually this tweet this week, which I sent to Marcel um, because it reminded me of this episode that said, you can't self-care yourself. Uh, it's sorry. It said, you can't self-care your way out of being crushed to death by the ruling class. <laughs> and I felt like there have, there has been a, a lot of rhetoric to this end about pointing out the discrepancy between the responsibilized individual subject and the structure that makes it sort of comical that that individual would be expected to deal with the circumstances that they're up against. And this has been called lately, quote, toxic positivity. And it's become, I think, a trending phrase in social media to for people to um, voice this distrust towards wellness jargon and marketing and to, and to voice a sense of just insincerity um, around influencers. So I think we wanted to close this by asking, have you noticed, I mean, obviously this book has, has only just come out a few months ago, but in, have you noticed any type of response or development in the repercussions of this, of this mindset? Yeah, thank you. That is a really, really good question. And uh, one that we have been thinking about um, more so in the last couple of months, um, when the book was already kind of in, in kind of in press, um, very much because of what you said that it's also become much more kind of uh, prominent and visible and and almost kind of coalesced now in this um, uh, sense of or, or, or reactions and backlash, and partly through the notion of toxic positivity. And I think we would agree that the notion of toxic positivity is, at least in the way it's framed, it's framed as a response to, and to an extent, perhaps a critique of the overemphasis in contemporary culture on positivity. And in, in, in so doing, um, perhaps as a critique of confidence culture, um, and the wellness industry, of course, is central to the confidence culture in that it's again, refigures individuals as self-governing subjects and promotes these ideas um, around women's obligations to self-care and to self-love and so on. Um, and so at the same time, what we have noted is that confidence culture really um, is very quick and very adaptive to incorporate the toxic positivity critique. Um, and supposedly it moves away from toxic positivity by telling women that they should feel comfortable in their skin, that should, they should accept themselves the way they are, that they should embrace their imperfections. Um, one of the examples we looked at actually after the book has already been um, in press, but we had kind of, we did a follow-up looking at 
positivity um, kind of messages and confidence messages during the pandemic um, is where in some examples, for instance, in women magazines, but also on social media, we've looked at um, there was a specific rejection of toxic positivity and saying, you know, don't do toxic positivity, kind of distance yourself. And instead, the, the supposed kind of alternative, so-called radical alternative, were things like just embrace being alive. Yeah? Um, and in fact, what we actually uh, argue and what we show in the book is how confidence culture heavily emphasizes positivity, optimism, you know, gratitude, happiness, feeling good. Um, and so it actually encourages women to constantly police their negative thoughts and feelings and replace them with positive ones. And in, in many ways, it incorporates this critique of toxic positivity as if it's, it was kind of offering a different kind of non-toxic positivity, if you wish. Um, and, you know, the, the wellness industry is really central to this. Um, it's not alone in this, but it's really central in, in, in propelling these ideas. Um, and we, I think, we, we share a kind of a suspiciousness about how <clears throat> genuinely um, this whole idea of toxic positivity allows a move away um, from um, the kind of confidence culture, at least in the ways that we uh, envisage and hope for. And we end the book, our conclusion is called Beyond Confidence. Um, and there we're thinking of ways in which we can move, if not completely outside confidence, because as we stressed in the beginning, we're not against confidence per se, but specifically to push against the, again, highly individualized and psychologized um, mode in which kind of uh, we are encouraged to operate and which we are encouraged to embody. But also, um, you know, that the immense labor um, and work that it involves, and it goes back, Marcel, to your notion of armor, which I found also very, very moving because you need to build an armor, don't you? You don't, you don't just kind of get it off the shelf. Um, and so this idea that somehow if we just recognize that this positivity trend is toxic and we move away from it would um, actually help us resolve things is, is another myth. Um, and in fact, it involves a lot of, again, labor. And that is, a, again, particularly um, addressed to women and that women encouraged to take on, to police themselves, to regulate how they feel, to either think positively and embrace positive thinking or avoid toxic positivity. All of these um, seem to us to be often kind of incorporated yet again into um, a culture that is intimately linked to the positivity industry. And again, it's very much about women having to boost their own confidence, women having to kind of take care and look after themselves and care for themselves because the structures out there um, are just not there to support them and help them care for them. Rose, I don't know if you want to add anything about toxic positivity. Just, just to add really another, just a final point, just around armour and, and armour and the reception of the book, I guess. And I guess a worry that both Shani and I have had is that people will read this book almost as taking away their armour. It's like, 
you know, well, this is what I had. This is what I was working with. This was the thing that was getting me through. And now you've come and, you know, critiqued this whole enterprise. And I feel like we're living in such a brutal moment of neoliberal capitalism at the moment. Um, in the UK, we're having this really, really like horrific um, cost of living crisis, as well as the pandemic. And people are choosing between eating or heating. And it's a very, very brutal, really materially difficult time. And sorry to have the wobble in my voice from emotion, but um, I think we do need armor, but I think our best armor is collective and it's, um, it's about solidarity and it's about working together to change things rather than turning inwards and working on the self. Thank you both for you know, those, those closing thoughts. And I, um, Rosalyn, what you were just um, talking about, you know, this, this book is, is so powerful because it is, it is disruptive in sort of the common sense that um, at least I have, you know, cultivated within myself. Um, I think about it, you know, especially, you know, having become a mother in the past year and wanting, I know if, if, if there's no other kind of seismic life transformation that forces one me especially to kind of look inward and become introspective and and, and do a lot of this type of self-disciplining self self-work right that you all um really dig into into the book taking stock of of who i am and being intentional about you know what i what i want to pass on and maybe what i don't want to pass on in terms of dispositions behaviors and things like that um, i really appreciate i just wanted to say Ros and i um, and and shani as well i really appreciate you you both a- a- acknowledging the 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 ambivalence that um, I, I think really um, um, saturates this idea of confidence. Uh, because I was, you know, I was going to ask you all, um, and I, I guess I could pose it as like a rhetorical question, you know, especially with the chapter on on motherhood. Thinking about, you know, until I read this book, confidence was really kind of a, a social idea and a disposition that I, you know. Have been trying to embody and perform so that you know my 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 child can can, can pick up on it. And so I've now I'm left with this book thinking, you know, if not confidence, then what? Right. And I think that the what you both have posed um, to close us out in terms of thinking about not these type of hyper-individualized, self-disciplining, self-management approaches to to solving the, you know, the social ills that we experience individually and collectively, but really looking towards how we can create and foster connections and networks and collectivity um, to, to shed a light on the, the, the bigger structural problems that are causing these seemingly individualized, but really um, structurally experienced and widely experienced feelings of, of unrest and dis-ease. Um, that confidence culture seems to, you know, be that magic pill to solve, solve all our problems. But um, in fact, we really have to, to think, you know, if not confidence, then what? And it's really um, looking to how we can rely on each other to find um, answers on how to move forward. So thank you for leaving, uh, leaving us in this podcast with this feeling of, of, of ambivalence and also looking to how we can uh, create something new out of the 
you know, detritus of confidence culture. So I want to thank you <laughs> both so much. Yo, it's really, it's really rattled me because I've, you know, I think I've been definitely, um, as much as I spent, you know, my career thinking about, you know, the politics of, of, of neoliberalism and the, and the, the culture and the psychology of how we, uh, how this economic system gets kind of embodied in how we experience the everyday, this book has really rattled me to think, you know, what is this confidence kick you're on, Marcel? And how is it really a, 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 um, a symptom of some other um, ideologies at play? But, you know, this, I think the power of this book is, is really how it's un unsettled me. So I want to thank you both mm. for producing um, this text, which, as Isabel mentioned um, earlier on, we've been waving around and preaching everyone to read. So um, I hope that it, 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 the message spreads far and wide. And we really just want to thank um, you both for your time and, and energy and ideas. Yes, thank, thank you so you. much. And, and I actually just wanted to say one more thing, Mar uh, Marcel, on the, to your point and to, your, and to both of your closing statements about your concern with the book stripping away something is that I think that on the contrary, Marcel and I have both found it like incredibly validating to see argued so thoroughly and eloquently something that we intuitively knew to be just not right. You know, I think that like the way in which neoliberal culture en encourages us to withdraw into ourselves and to isolate ourselves from each other and to fail to see our interdependence is very unnatural and that in our psyche, we know in our hearts that it's wrong. So to have a way to articulate that and express it to other people and to discuss it amongst ourselves is actually like such a great gift. It's not, it's not disempowering, it's empowering, I think. So that would be my, that would be my close. Um, thank you. For, thank for you, that's amazing. Um, thank you so much. I feel yeah. like going away and crying actually. I feel <laughs> so kind of, just yeah very very deeply moved by this conversation and thank you so thank you. much for your generosity and for having such a generative conversation